the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, yes, but like a good Gidensu knife commercial, he slices, he dices, and so much more. (laughs) Great to have you with us. Welcome. It is the Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 16th of May as we progress through the week here. Awfully glad that you've decided to um, spend some time with us, wherever you might be headed on this Thursday evening. We've got a pretty jam-packed program to keep you uh, plugged in, tuned in, turned on, and uh, fired up. Let's see. Coming up a little bit later on tonight, Brian Johnston is going to drop by. Hour number two, we're going to get an update. Um, We have seen just an incredible number of pro-life Bills rolling across a variety of states. It's ranged from, uh, you know, uh, Georgia to Texas to Virginia. Uh, what does all of this mean? What's the big picture here? And while we as pro-life folks can get very excited about what's happening in many of these other states, our own California? Yeah, not so. We'll get an update. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, coming up later on tonight, hour number two. Also in hour number two, our good buddy, Wayne Pedersen, who is the former vice president of Moody Radio, going to talk to us about a brand new endeavor to put on the air a 250,000-watt transmitter that will broadcast the gospel 24 hours a day into North Korea. You've got to believe Kim Jong-un is not going to welcome that, but we welcome it. We'll find out all the details. Wayne Pedersen joins us on the program. Also, uh, you know, all this talk, the the candidates for the Democrat side, a lot of talk about socialism and uh, closing the pay gap. Well, is that really the way to go? Or is there a perhaps more targeted fashion that is supportive of capitalism, protects our way of life here in America, and yet allows workers with a stakehold in corporate America, let's face it, they provide all the labor, to um, to close that pay gap. Well, Dr. Larry Fedowal with the Washington Times will join us. He's got a new article he's just written concerning unions and what he calls conscious capitalism. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in tonight's program. Thanks to all of you sent notes over regarding our broadcast debate last night, the Lifeline Pastors panel on the road talking about um, the more recent Pew survey in relationship to what's happening with the church and the challenges that the church is facing in the 21st century. And, and so much of it, as you heard last night, comes back to this central notion that at certain lever, layers, at levels, we have failed as the church to really execute on the Great Commission. You know, this notion of going forth, preaching the gospel to all the world, going out into the highways and byways, and as I often like to quote on the program, and compelling them to come in. There's not much, sadly, sometimes in our Christian testimony that's very compelling to the unsaved world. We are certainly called to share. 
We are called, I think, to a great degree to engage in lifestyle evangelism. That means we live out our life in such a fashion that people go, wow, you're different. Why so? And then there's the notion of marketplace evangelism. And, and, and maybe to, to the broader degree, while marketplace tends to refer to what goes on in the business world, um, think broader. Think about the ways in which you come across or interact with the grocer, the baker, the candlestick maker on a day-to-day basis, and how that each one of our lives can touch other lives in a very phenomenal way by simply putting to work within our businesses the principles that guide us from Scripture, and allowing that to be a testimony that can then indeed be compelling enough to cause those who engage with us in the workplace, in the work world, to ask questions about what makes us different. One guy that's learned what that's all about is my first guest tonight. Mike Rovner is the president of Rovner Construction Company. He's an elder at City Church in Ventura, and he's founder and president of Thrive. And Mike, great to have you on the program. Craig, thanks for having me. Let's talk about this notion of marketplace evangelism, something that in many ways you have uh, perfected. Now, I'll mention to the benefit of our listeners here uh, that don't know you, um, as I mentioned, you are the founder and president of Rovner Construction. You began your company in 1992. You had one employee. I guess that was you. Today, you have more than 300 people in your employ. And God did an amazing thing. Um, you. This is an interesting part of your story I'm, I'm eager to hear about. Early on, you gave your life to Christ, and then quickly thereafter got arrested. Now, of course, Paul did too, but Paul did it a little slower than you did. Tell us a bit about that story, what God has done in your life, and most importantly, how you believe that God has has blessed you, blessed your business, and allowed you to bless others by applying biblical principles not just to your own life but to your work life as well. Well, yeah, great. Thanks. That's uh, a really good question. And what happened was, uh, growing up, I was a very troubled youth. Um, every male role model I had was a drug dealer, my uncles and my stepdad. So it was really the only life that I knew. And so I kind of followed in the family business and, until I met this woman, who's now my wife. And she was actually a backslidden Christian and used to buy drugs from me. And She's uh, writing a book right now called I Brought My Drug Dealer to Church. And so what happened was um, she wanted to get her life right with God, and I had fallen in love with her. So I said, if you want to do that, I'll, I'll do it with you. And I had never been to a church. And so one Sunday she asked me to go with her. And after the service, uh, she took me up to the front, and there was a little woman there. And the little woman says, say this prayer and repeat it after me, and so I was like, sure. And here's the prayer, Craig. God, come in my life and take the things out that you want out and put the things in that you want in, in Jesus' name. Very simple. And so the next day, the very next day, my house got raided by the police, and I was arrested. And so I always tell people, be very careful for what you pray for. It (laughs) might just happen. And so I was in jail that night, and I cried out to God, and I was like, God, I just prayed and gave you my life. How did this happen? And it was really the first time I, and I I was the unchurched, and I really didn't know that uh, God could show you things. And, you know, that night, God really showed me that he did this for me 
and he had a new plan for my life. And that was just coming up now on 27 years ago. Wow. He was going to make you accountable at the very beginning and certainly rock your world, get your attention, and uh, and then begin to change you and begin that process of putting off the old man and, and taking on the new. Um, you eventually, as I mentioned, began your own construction company, which has just exploded um, in the uh, 20, 30 years that you have owned it. And, and I understand that you attribute a lot of that to just day-to-day living out the gospel, treating your employees like Jesus would want you to treat them, and treating your customers the same as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so so what happened was, uh, after uh, Jan and I, we got married, and she said, we're a Christian now, so we have to find a little, uh, 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 we have to find a church. So I had a little drywall repair business, and I'm doing like $100 jobs and $500 jobs, and we, we found this little church that the pastors are professors of the Word of God. And so they would teach us this way, Craig, super important. They would teach us uh, to take what they were teaching on Sunday, the principles of the Bible, and apply it on Monday. And what I had was this repair business. So I started taking that and applying it to my job, and that's when I really started to see the supernatural of God in my job. And isn't it amazing? I mean, so many of us tend, I, I think a lot of it has to do with greed. We, we, we tend to kind of operate in the flesh when it comes to um, the workplace. We run a business. We're trying to get as much money as we possibly can, grind every last nickel out, all that bit. Um, and, and yet, as you describe, learning to operate not in the flesh, but rather in the supernatural, r- willing to, to make the sacrifices sometimes necessary to put the principles that you learned on Sunday to work Monday through Friday has really made all the difference. Absolutely. So, you know, there's two ways or two systems I found to operate. You can operate in the natural or you can operate in the supernatural. And I'm just going to tell you the supernatural is better because I've tried both ways. And so in the natural, you have to work harder than anybody else. In the natural, you have to be smarter than anybody else. And you have to make the right moves. And, and in the natural, you, you can't make any mistakes. Uh, see, but in the natural, we are relying on ourselves. But in the supernatural, we become reliant on God. And that is the true essence of humility, is when you rely on God and you acknowledge Him in everything you do. And then you start to walk and act in the supernatural, and you see the miraculous supernatural of God in everything you do. But, Mike, that's challenging for a lot of business people, particularly for business owners or those in the corporate world that have kind of worked their way up the ladder, and there's a sense of of self-accomplishment there and sometimes self-entitlement that says, well, but wait a minute now. The plaque on the door and the parking space downstairs and my business card all says, I'm the boss, I'm the big honcho, I'm the guy in charge. What you're suggesting is surrendering and saying, you know, maybe on the incorporation papers it says that I'm president, but God really needs to be in charge here. Is that what you're telling me? Absolutely. And this is just what I found, is if we operate that way, then we will have, like, a sustained success. And it won't just be successful in your job economically, but also you'll see people come to know Christ. I mean, i got to say one of the things that I'm the happiest about of what God has done in my business is we've seen over a thousand people come to know Jesus through our job. Wow. And there's a level of satisfaction there that, you know, that, that number may not show up on a P&L statement. Uh, it, 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 but ironically, though, it does hit your bottom line in the sense that God rewards you 
for having been faithful. And you've, you even started a side ministry, and I, we're running out of time here, and it looks like we're going to have to have you back because uh, the, the, the five or ten minutes they gave us is just not enough. But you, you've started a, a ministry that helps teach business people not only what the principles are, but how to apply these biblical principles to their business, to their, their marketplace evangelism. Tell me a bit about Thrive. So what happened was, one day I'm just walking my dog, and I'm kind of just, I'm praying, and I'm like, God, what am I supposed to do with my life? I, I mean, I know that I'm not called to ministry as a vocation, but I feel like I have a call to the marketplace and where I'm at, and I really felt like God was showing me He wanted me to teach other people to do what I do, and that's you know how I pray over my jobs, how I pray for the people I work with, and, and all of the supernatural miracles, I mean... You know, we ha- that's why we wrote a book called Supernatural, Mir- uh, Supernatural Business, is because we've just seen hundreds and hundreds of miracles over the last 25 years. And so this book is kind of like a, uh, I think it's like a shortcut for people. It will shorten their learning curve. And so what we did was we started to put together teachings and trainings on how to put the Bible into practice in your everyday job. And so that's where we started Thrive, and it's Thrive Teaching org and the cool thing about it is I have a regular job so the way my wife and I believe God showed us was that we were supposed to build this platform so that people could just download the stuff for free even the book supernatural business which is 25 years of the things that I've went through the processes I've went through the prayers I've prayed and kind of the trials that I've had to uh, kind of go through. And that's what this book is all about. And so, what I love um, about it is that you're, you're making all of these resources available uh, to help other business people, to help other individuals um, learn the power of the principles that can not only uh, drive their business to success, but most importantly, effectively engage in that marketplace evangelism uh, to impact lives, as you say, in, in your course of years of business, over a thousand um, have have made a decision because of the influence of the example that you've set. More information available on the web at thriveteaching.org. That's thriveteaching.org. Mike Rovner, president of Rovner Construction, founder and president of Thrive. And uh, Mike, we've got to get you back with Janet. I'd love to hear more of the story, and uh, maybe we'll spend some more time together and, and um, get both of you to kind of unfold more of the story here for our listeners. Mike Rovner, and again, details available on the web at thriveteaching.org. All right, 519, we're way late. If you're stuck in traffic, you are too. So we're all in the <laughs> we're all in the same mess together. Let's get caught up here traffic-wise at the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, Bill de Blasio has tossed his name in the ring. What does that make? Uh, 23, 24? I'm, I'm, I've lost count. Um, we're anticipating either Friday or Monday. Joel Rivera will also be announcing um, his candidacy for president of the United States. And we'll, um, we'll get some signs and bumper stickers. I'm <laughs> well, why not, Joel? I mean, everybody else seems to think they can run the place. So why, why not you too, right? 
number of the candidates, as you know, have advocated for um, socialist policies and agendas. And a lot of this, of course, ties into um, dealing with the 99 versus the one percenters, wanting to close the pay gap, things of this sort. And, of course, at the end of the day, if you really understand socialism, you'll understand that that will not get us any closer to uh, parity when it comes to pay. If anything, it's just going to set the whole thing uh, topsy-turvy and and turn it upside down. My next guest tonight has written about the topic of the pay gap and, most importantly, uh, taking a look at what's happening in relationships between corporate America and the workers. He talks about, in a new article, Conscious capitalism. It's the first time I'd heard the term. Dr. Larry Fedowa is Washington Times conservative political writer, and great to have you back on the show. Um, you know, I, 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 certainly anybody who um, punches a clock for a living would love to see um, a, a reduction in that so-called pay gap, but, I, but I've often wondered uh, whether or not socialism is really capable of getting us there. Well, I don't think that... Uh Socialism can do it, but I think capitalism can. Uh, but we've just got to rethink capitalism. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of guys now who are uh, hot on that trail, and I find it very, very exciting. Well, I'm fascinated by this, Dr. Fedowa, because, you know, if we look back at, at uh, the unionization of the 1930s, for example, uh, the, the unions brought about um, a dramatic change in standards, labor standards, workers' rights, um, all of that grew out of the unionization of the 1930s. And then we've sort of seen the unions in recent years uh, wane pretty significantly. I suppose a lot of that has to do with, with offshore manufacturing. Um, but the the proposal that I'm seeing here inside this notion of conscious capitalism really takes us back to the idea that it's not just the stockholders, it's not just corporate management that has a stake in the game. It really even pulls the workers in and says to the guy on the line, it says to the factory worker, you too have a direct stake in the outcome, in the success of this company, and as much so, you too also have an opportunity to really benefit from the growth of this company. Absolutely. And not only that, but you can make a lot of contributions um, beyond just uh, acting like a robot, you know, and putting all the pieces every time the the uh, production line comes comes down. If um, I, I don't know if you remember uh, what was going on in in the '90s, particularly '80s, but particularly the '90s when they were talking about uh, total quality management. Oh yes, very much so. And uh, you know the. Uh, all of the uh, things that were trying, they were trying to improve production, but <clears throat> I, I see that as kind of a predecessor for this conscious capitalism. Because if uh, you know, when we when we found out uh, when we asked the workers to contribute to the uh, efficiency and the uh, quality of what we were uh, turning out, uh, we found out that there was a tremendous uh, reservoir of imagination and creativity and loyalty and all sorts of very helpful things. And uh, this, this sort of takes that a step farther now and says, okay, guys, uh, we're all in this together, and why don't, we, um, why don't we see if we can tackle all these problems uh, as, as a group, as a, as a, in a cooperative way, 
and um, and that, by the way, uh, ultimately gets to the uh, redistribution of the wealth that has been produced by all the uh, productivity we've experienced, and that is through uh, some form of uh, profit sharing. I mean, why should why should the, uh, the if you look at the supply chain that is required for our consumer economy uh, right now, the only people that are really really benefiting are the people that, that invent it and the people that, that own it in the, in the shareholders. Uh, but everybody that that contributed to it is really part of it and really ought to uh, ought to have the right to uh, some compensation for it. Well, and, and uh, interestingly enough, it, it goes to the heart of, of some of the fundamental principles of capitalism, and that is the notion of the balance of risk and reward. And and historically, we've seen largely um, in the corporate world, the uh, the reward was on the behalf of the uh, shareholders, and and the risk was often not singularly, but many in many respects, the the risk was on the the side of the equation of the workers. Meaning that um, if they didn't do a good job, if they didn't turn out a quality product, if if sales were not good, then the worker ran the risk of being laid off or the company shut down. Conversely so, if they did a fantastic job and products sold through the roof, the shareholders benefited from the increased proceeds from dividends and, and share price, and the workers, well, the workers got to keep their job. So it really, it really changes the dynamic here. And what I find fascinating about this, Dr. Fetto, is the fact that, you know, typically the adjective that precedes capitalist is either greedy or filthy. Um, this is turning things on its head by talking about the conscious capitalist. Go a little bit deeper, if you were, in terms of how this works. Well, um, the... They start with the idea that uh, profit is not an end in itself. Profit is a means to an end. And the, and the end, or the greater good, is that the uh, company uh, exists to serve the entire community. And that community is defined, uh, depending on the company, it can be defined as much as, uh, you know, our local our local uh, uh, restaurant or our local supermarket, but it can also uh, extend to uh, all of the stakeholders in the world. I mean, even if you're, you could be an international company, and uh, and uh, if that's the case, then we have to take responsibility for uh, the way that we are treating um, our 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 mission. Our mission is to do something. You know, like in Starbucks, it's uh, coffee. In uh, in that uh, pill, my pillow, it's uh, get the best pillow. But but that is really also only a, a, a means to an end. And the end ultimately is the good of the entire of the entire community, or the entire nation, or the entire world, depending on what your market is. Sure. And, you know, for the longest time, and we've seen this historically, and, and maybe this makes good press and, and uh, you know, good headlines in the newspaper, but we've always seen sort of the idea that management is on one side of the table and labor is on the other, and never the twain shall meet. What you're suggesting, then, if I'm following you here, is that the notion of, of, of conscious capitalism suggests that there is more of a team effort, that instead of management being lined up against labor and vice versa, uh, that this really puts the interests of the worker, the interests of the company, the greater good at the center of focus. Absolutely. And I, I have uh, been, uh, I came to this, this whole subject really more from an economic point of view 
and but it's gotten to be more than way more than that. For example, I I I've been in touch with some of my old friends in the uh, labor movement, and I'm discovering that there's there there are some of these young bucks in the labor movement um, are really very interested in uh, in this conscious capitalism concept, and uh, and they're tra- they're talking about how they can actually join forces. Uh, with the uh, with management and uh, trying to make a whole new era uh, for uh, workers' rights, it's 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 really exciting. <laughs> well, and as you point out, we we've seen degrees to which that has been tried in the past. I mean, here in the Bay Area, um, folks will will may not be aware, but should be aware that uh, during the heyday of uh, um, the relationship between General Motors and um, Toyota here in uh, in Fremont, the East Bay, they um, applied this total quality management concept that Dr. Fedowa spoke of a moment ago, and it said to the workers, hey, the better job that you do in terms of um, the production of vehicles and the lowest rate of defects – the more vehicles we can produce, the more cars we produce, the more cars we sell, the more cars we sell, the more profit we make, the more profit we make, we're able to return more of that back to the worker by way of bonuses and increased wages and better benefits. And so it kind of completed the circle. So this takes that notion of having everybody working on the same side of the table instead of against each other, but rather with each other and takes it to the next logical level. This is an idea that I I think uh, Dr. Fedewa certainly, uh, whose time has come, and I hope we can see more traction on this because, you know, the, the, the more I hear about people wanting to bring about parity and close the pay gap through socialism, I think of that old um, observation by um, former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher who said the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. So <laughs> if we can find a way to share the wealth together and everybody benefits together, uh, then, you know, the old adage, the, the water rises all boats together at the same time. Uh, becomes a, a greater truism from an economic standpoint. The article in depth you can check out at mypoliticalinsights.com. That's mypoliticalinsights.com. New item published by Dr. Larry Fetto, Washington Times conservative political writer. We always appreciate both his time and his insights. Check this one out. It's one certainly worth looking into and a word certainly worth spreading. Again, the article, Workers' Rights in the 21st Century Unions and Conscious Capitalism, available at mypoliticalinsights.com. Our thanks to Dr. Larry Fedowa for being with us. All right, 534, time to get caught up on traffic. Latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. As we continue on, think about some of the books that have had a profound impact on your life. Um, certainly, I would presuppose as a listener to this program that um, if you had to give me the list of the top um, five or ten, the Bible would be at the top of that list. Um, others that come to mind for me in terms of uh, books that really had a, a positive impact include Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Oswald Chambers, My Upmost for His Highest, right? C.S. Lewis, uh, no list will be complete without his number of great books, including Mere Christianity. How about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's 
The Cost of Discipleship. Those are just a handful of some of my top ones. My next guest has written a book that talks about seven others. Now, they're not necessarily top books in terms of having a positive influence, but they are seven books that rocked the church. There are seven books that perhaps we as the church largely um, have underestimated the staying power of the impact of the thoughts, ideas, and philosophies that these books and their authors promoted. Dr. Daniel Crane is Senior Professor of Law, University of Michigan Law School, and the new book is called Seven Books That Rocked the Church. And Dr. Crane, great to have you on the program. As I say, when most people think about books that rock the church, they think in the positive vein. You've come up with a list, though, that's not only had a, um, a profound impact on the church, but largely, a, I, I would say, a deleterious impact on culture and society because the fashion and manner in which the ideas and philosophies that they promoted kind of turned a um, water hose to the foundation of, of much which is dear within historical Christianity. That's right. Well, thanks for having me on the show. So I wrote this book because I operate in a very secular, liberal environment as an academic, and I'm always trying to get people to listen to the Christian message and be open-minded to it. Uh, and oftentimes I find that people aren't open-minded to it. They'll, they'll just turn it off. And, um, and one of the things that people say to me is, well, the Church has had a very long history of not listening to other people either. And so I wanted to write a book that took seriously the idea that the Church has had a a poor uh, record in many ways of, of listening to, to books and to ideas that were contrary to Christian beliefs. Uh, and, and to sort of, from the, from the early church to the modern church, look at uh, seven different stories about seven books that upset Christians, and, and talk about how the church responded to those books, often in ways I think that was not very constructive. Uh, and all of this with a view to thinking, how can we do better in the future to engage the world uh, by, by you know, interacting and engaging ideas instead of shutting them down? Uh, if we want to be listened to, we have to be willing to do the same thing. And, you know, when we, we think about some of these books, um, perhaps it, it's demonstrative of a lingering degree of ignorance within the church. And, and I kind of understand the idea. I mean, you know, it, for example, they will say, well, the FBI, when they, when they teach people, when they teach agents, when they, when they instruct tellers on how to identify um, uh, false bills, they don't spend a lot of time saying, okay, well, here's this, this false bill and that false bill, and here's how you, you – uh, uh, acknowledge or, or recognize the counterfeit. What they rather do is they help people to really study and understand what the real deal looks like. And then when the counterfeit comes along, it purportedly will be easier to spot. So I think a lot of Christians have spent time studying the real deal, but as a result have largely come up short when it comes to the understanding of many of these these authors and the books that they wrote that have had a profound impact, as we say, on society. And, and as a result, maybe Dr. Crane um, are, are not fully formed when it comes to their ability to be able to argue and counter some of the the discussions or, or philosophies or principles that are brought up. I mean, for example, uh, how many Christians come up short in even being able to, to engage in a discussion regarding creation, creationism or, or um, you know, uh, divine intervention and uh, evolution in relationship to the writings of Charles Darwin and his origin of the species? 
that's why I think I think if you're going to um, counter uh, a theory uh, of any kind, you have to understand it. You know, it's your point about Christians, uh, you know, only listening to the truth. You know, I think an example of the Apostle Paul, who appeared before the Areopagus in Athens, as record the Book of Acts, and makes this defense of the faith before the cream of the crop of the uh, of the Greek intellectual elite. Uh, and, and what does he do? He starts by quoting their own philosophers. He starts by by reporting on his observations of their culture from what he's seen about their idols, uh, the statue of the unknown god. This is a, a missionary who, who has his effect uh, in presenting the gospel by by having listened to and studied the the pagan culture, and he's more effective. For Christ, because be able to say, "Listen, I listen to your people. I know them. I can quote them back to you." And now here is the message I want to present to you. But that's my challenge. It's not to. It's not to say that we have to accept uh, things which are against the gospel. But we need to be prepared and engaged by having listened to them and, and listen critically to them. Um, sometimes also there 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 are things that are true and, and things that are false. And uh, I think of the example of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Book of Daniel. Who, who studied the, the, the literature of the Babylonians, and when they were done, they were ten times uh, better than anyone else in the kingdom, uh, because they had, they had absorbed that body of knowledge, much of which was astrology uh, and, and pagan teaching, uh, but, they, but they'd done so in a way God used even their engagement with that uh, ungodly body of material to make them uh, very, very wise. So that, that's why the call to to engage and to listen and to be active in, in, in participating uh, in a kind of dialogue with the world. And, you know, so often we, we get accused of being anti-intellectual, anti-education, anti-history. Um, we, we will come forward with the proposition that, well, it, it, it's all based on, on faith. And, 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 and certainly, you know, when we, when we think of the sola, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gracia, I get that. The problem is when you're trying to use that as an argument to a non-believer, and they've read these books, they understand what's said in these books, and we come back and counter with, well, I know what the Bible says, and we we are steadfast on that, and cannot engage in point-counterpoint, even to the point of, of at least minimally understanding the position that they're coming from, so that we can give that 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 argument, that evidence that demands a verdict, that hope for the you know for the for for for, for the, the 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 reason for the hope that lies within, so to speak, that we really fall up short. And and is it any wonder then that oftentimes Christians are dismissed by those who are learned, have studied these books, because we come across as if we're anti-intellectual. That, that's right. You know, and I think you know as we when we witness to people. We're not just engaging in intellectual debate, trying to win an argument. And sometimes I've seen Christians debating that way. Is that all they want to do is win the argument? We do want, though, to understand the other side's argument and to and to approach people with with an open mind. Uh, it's not that we're we're, we're you know, waiting to be convinced that the, the the gospel is wrong, but we're unafraid that the truth we have will be disproven by what they say. Uh, and, and so, you know, so often I see people in the world, secular people, who are, who have, are abysmally ignorant of, of what Christians actually believe. And that's because they hear these caricatures uh, of what Christians believe, and then they think that's what Christians actually believe, what the Bible actually teaches. And so it's frustrating to me you know, try to have debates with intelligent people, or just discussions with intelligent people, when oftentimes they don't understand the first thing about what I actually, what my faith actually is. And I want to say to them, listen, I, I am willing to take the time out 
to really to read uh, to Freud and, and Darwin uh, and, and Marx and, and, and Voltaire and, and these people who, who you hold up as as important uh, you know contributors to the intellectual traditions that you're part of. I, I know those people too. I read those people too. Uh, and so maybe you'll give some time of day to my ideas as well. We're visiting today with Dr. Daniel Crane. The book is called Seven Books That Rocked the Church. When we come back, we won't have time certainly to get into all the books, but we'll we'll discuss maybe the top two or three, get his insights on them, and uh, talk more about the importance of a rounded understanding here. And again, this isn't to suggest at all that uh, the Bible is uh, inadequate when it comes to putting forward an argument, but you're in a position so much stronger if when someone counters something you say with, yes, I understand, or I know, I'm aware, I've read, and have you considered, too, that we come from a position now of, of, of intellectual and educational strength as opposed to what appears to be by our protractors as ignorance and weakness. We'll take this time out. Back with more of our discussion, Seven Books That Rock the Church. Dr. Daniel Crane, as our conversation continues. Right now, though, we're going to talk a bit about traffic here at 11 minutes away from 6 o'clock from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. A look at seven books that rocked the church. This book, by the way, is newly published. Hendrickson Publishers, you can find it at many of the usual suspects, uh, certainly online at Amazon.com. And um, also, you can get information through Dr. Crane's website at Professor Dan Crane, Professor as you abbreviated, P-R-O-F, ProfDanCrane.com. Um, one of the seven books that you talk about here, and, and this is probably, I mean, it's difficult. They've all got in different arenas of um, the, the faith um, had deleterious impacts. But, but one of the ones that, that probably for many people would be at the top of the list is Darwin's Origin of the Species. Um, certainly this has been a thorn in the side of the church uh, since the Scopes Monkey Trial of the 1920s. Um, Knowing some of what I do of the end of Darwin's life, there are moments when I've often wondered whether or not um, this theory that was put forth um, had more to do with him trying to explain away the existence of God than any observations he made in the Galapagos Islands. Um, Any notion here in terms of whether or not there was some intent um, in turning a fire hose on the foundation of Christianity when it comes to the origin of mankind? Well, it's interesting. You know, he, he uses the word created about 60 times in Origin of Species, always in a negative sense. He's always, he's always fighting against the idea of a created uh, world, natural order. But at the very end of the book, he says, oh, but by the way, this, you know, my theories on, on uh, natural selection uh, don't have to be inconsistent with a view about you know, a role of God in the world. Now, I think he did that primarily to um, assuage his wife's concern. She was, she was a very devout Christian and was very concerned about the effect of his writing on, on, on her faith and uh, on his own faith, which, which really had lapsed. Um, but I think you're right that uh, many writers, uh, even scientific writers, 
uh, the theories they put forward come out not merely of their observations of the world, but of personal things. Darwin had to grapple with the, the loss of his young daughter. He became very, very sad about that. Uh, and I think in many ways that was one of the things that pushed him away from his, from his previous uh, space. So although it is, of course, a work of science, um, I, I don't think there's anything such as a work of science that comes from a purely objective uh, place. I think lots of works, even of science, are motivated by, by things that are happening to us personally. Um, if, if on your list, um, I, I don't know, I'm presupposing that, that um, like myself, Darwin would be high on that list, but of, of some of the others that you include, and again, I don't want to give away the book here, uh, Dr. Crane, folks can, can go out and get a copy of it and, and go deeper, uh, but who for you would, would you say, perhaps aside from uh, Charles Darwin, is, is one of the authors that's had the biggest negative impact? Well, you know, I think that Karl Marx, obviously, his, his theory of, of communism and Communist Manifesto uh, has had a tremendously negative impact on the world. But also, in many ways, it was directed against the Church. Uh, it, you know, it was an economic theory, ultimately. It was a political and revolutionary theory. But as we all know, you know, he was famous for saying that, that religion is the opiate of the masses. Uh, and his, his mind, um, you know, the, 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 the proletariat class, would naturally have risen up already if it hadn't been for sort of religion and Christianity in particular uh, as sort of standing in the way of, of people getting class consciousness and, and realizing that they were being oppressed, banding together. And so it, it was an economic and political theory, but one that was very much aimed um, at, uh, at, 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 at a Christian view of the world. In fact, there's a, there's a portion of the Communist Manifesto where, uh, where, where Marx um, responds to people even at that age who want to sort of create a kind of Christian socialism. And he basically says, stop kidding yourselves. Um, you can't do that. Uh, the theories I'm propounding uh, are, are just contrary to, to uh, Christian theory altogether. So uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, and of course, it's not, it's not uh, any surprise that this, the way it worked out. When you see the persecution of the Church behind the Iron Curtain, uh, communism has never had a, you know, a, a sympathetic place for the Church. So that's another one, certainly, that... Um, we, but we need to understand the argument. We need to understand uh, where Marx was coming from, uh, and uh, and be be prepared to you know engage seriously the arguments he made because uh, we may think that they're dead but boy they're still alive in lots of places today. Boy, isn't that the truth? You know, and, and interesting to note that uh, while the book uh, um, either wished to or, or at least purported to wish to bring uh, economic liberty to the world, it ended up enslaving it for uh, well a good portion of certainly the last one hundred and two years uh, since the uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in nineteen seventy. <coughs> Pardon me. In 1917, uh, this is a compelling book, and it's a book about a book. It's a book about seven books that ultimately rock the church, um, and these range in arenas from uh, the origins of man, as we've been discussing, to modern psychology, um, to even a more modern author like Joseph Campbell, who what was his old line? Follow your bliss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Just don't follow your myth is probably the the, the tagline to that. Uh, but you know, a, again, in his his efforts to try and intentionally um, raise doubts about faith and certainly the God of the Bible and. Uh, uh, the impact of many of these authors continues to be felt to this very day. And so 
understanding what they've put forward and being ready to give an answer for that hope that lies within and counter many of these arguments is really what you learn inside the pages of seven books that rock the church. Dr. Daniel Crane, Senior Professor at University of Mission Law School. We appreciate so much, Dr. Crane, your time and the insights offered. Book, again, available at Bay Area bookstores. You can get it through Amazon.com or through Dr. Crane's personal website. Um, Just abbreviate Professor, P-R-O-F, ProfDanCrane.com. Six o'clock exactly from KFAX. Time for us to get you an update here on some headline news. First, look at traffic. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.